This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Appreciate you tuning in today. We're in Romans chapter 9, picking up in our Roman series. In chapter 9, verse 22, verse 22, Romans 9, 22, Paul says, What if God, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. I don't know who said it, but I believe that it's a biblical principle. But someone said that bitterness over the past is an obstacle to joy in the present. Bitterness over the past is an obstacle to joy in the present. So Paul is turning his attention now to God's plan concerning his ancient people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, as the names that they're most popularly known by in Scripture, I believe. And what Paul is saying here in Romans 9, and not just in this chapter, we, we've encountered this before in chapter 3 as well, we find that, generally speaking, their bitterness blinded them to the real joy and hope God had placed at their fingertips in fulfilling the prophecies of sending his son into the world to create this one united kingdom of people that would include Jews and Gentiles, anybody who was willing to submit to the terms and God's conditions for membership in his kingdom. And this was upsetting to a lot of Hebrews, a lot of Jews. Uh, just look in the book of Acts, specifically chapter 13, one example where Paul goes from synagogue to synagogue, and in that particular instance, he, around verse 40, is concluding his message, and it says that the people there were begging, he's speaking, the people being the Jews in the synagogue where he was speaking, were begging him and the others, uh, preachers, to come and speak more about the gospel and, tell, and, and, and speak to them more about Christ. And we find Paul did just that a week later, and... It turns out when the Gentiles showed up to hear the message and Paul doesn't send them away, but gives every indication that this is this gospel is for them also. Um, many of the Hebrews there in that audience began contradicting the things that Paul was saying, even though previously a week ago in the context, they were begging that these things might be spoken again. Right. And so all of that contradiction was motivated by their Jealousy, the Holy Spirit says in chapter 13, and their unwillingness to accept God's plan to unite all people in his uh, under one banner in his kingdom on the same and under the same conditions or by the same conditions in obedience to to his son. And so they robbed themselves of fellowship with God. And this is the very thing that Paul is lamenting in Romans chapter nine, where he is saying that my my prayer to God for them is, is for their salvation. He didn't want this. To, to be the case. He wanted them to have eternal life and the joy that comes as a result of having fellowship with God and, and having those spiritual blessings in, in Christ. And simply because they felt God had not fulfilled his promise to restore their glory, this was the very thing that they allowed to, to get in their way of accepting the gospel in a lot of cases, not in every case, but in many cases, it's what the Holy Spirit singles out as, as the reason. Well, this wasn't what they imagined. This wasn't the kind of kingdom they were expecting, right? He he did not, 
and by and large, again, generally speaking, uh, the Jews were looking forward to this kind of restoration of a Davidic united kingdom where Rome would go away and they would have, um, you know, sovereignty again and they would be this autonomous nation again. And that just wasn't what God's plan was going to be. He was bringing in a kingdom that would transcend all others and in a way destroy all others because it would outlast them. You know, it would be greater than them. It would be full founded on better promises. And so God afforded his own people and all people the opportunity to be part of that kingdom, to find salvation through Jesus Christ and find a place in that glorious kingdom. Uh, but it just wasn't, by and large, again, generally speaking, just wasn't what they wanted. There were many Jewish converts uh, we can read about in the book of Acts. So it's not all negative responses, uh, but generally that was the case. Generally that was the case. And, and it always will be. Uh, those who join the cause of Christ, who submit to him in obedience and obey his gospel, will be in the minority. As Jesus said, there are, there are few who find the narrow gate. There are few who walk the narrow path. That's my paraphrase. But he says, why does why does the way and broad is the gate that leads to destruction? And there are many who find it. And that's contrasted with the minority who ultimately find life in God. So Paul is beginning to explain the sad consequences in this in this chapter, the sad consequences of his Jewish brethren's bitter response to God. And he says in verse 1 and 2, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And so why was Paul so upset? Well, as, as we've said, he knew that his brethren, according to the flesh, had rejected the salvation of God offered in, in Jesus Christ. And he even goes so far as to say that he would allow himself to be rejected if it meant their acceptance. In, in verse 3, if you continue reading there. And so Paul freely acknowledges um, this, and he also acknowledges the special position of the Hebrews in, in history as a people set apart by God. And we can read about the amazing things that God did in Exodus to bring those people out of Egypt um, and the promise and fulfillment of the promise that he made to Abraham and his descendants and adopt those people by covenant. Um, but again, that was all in the interest of fulfilling his greater plan to bring his son into the world, to offer salvation to all people. But going back to, to verse 4 uh, in Romans chapter 9, again, Paul is freely acknowledging the the great privileges uh, that, uh, that his people had. Verse 4, the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory of the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. And so Paul, again, he's really acknowledging the great privileges and benefits, the special status, we might even say, of God's people in, in the Old Covenant and the, all the glory that that entailed. Um, there's so, you know, a lot of those words carry a lot of weight that he's mentioning there generally as, as he's mentioning the fathers, you know, and the, and the prophets and the, and the famous patriarchs that we read about in the Old Testament, like Abraham and Job and their faith and their endurance. And so, he acknowledges that, but at the same time, he also acknowledges their failure to accept the revelation that God offers in, in his son. You know, as the Hebrew writer says at the beginning of his letter in Hebrews chapter 1, that God in these last days has spoken to us in his dear son, in his dear son. And, and Paul, jumping ahead a little bit, you know, as he's continuing this discussion into chapter 10, 
He says, brethren, and he says in verse 1 of chapter 10, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Not only about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so he continues to be very candorous and very frank about his own personal feelings toward his people and and their rejection of of God's plan. Uh, so what was their hang up? Well, they weren't they weren't enjoying the glorious destiny they envisioned. God had accepted the Gentiles and again offered them salvation on equal terms as he did for the Jews. And so it seemed to them that God was going back on his promises. And this is what Paul begins to address now in verse 6 when he says it's not as though the word of God has failed. So God isn't doing anything that um, he said he wasn't going to do. He's not violating his word. His word hasn't failed. And then Paul begins to explain, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. They are not Israel who are all descended from Israel. Uh, So genealogy was a big deal in uh, Jewish culture uh, with uh, with good reason. Uh, They were expecting a messianic king and kingdom. And from from the line of David because of the Davidic promise. And so um, they were focused in on that uh, genealogy and they kept very strict records. Right. So they would recognize the one when he came and the one Jesus Christ was not who they expected. Uh, As Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, that he had no uh, visage that would make him attractive, no stately appearance like a king, but he was despised and rejected as the prophecy goes. And so the, the the Jews, again, were not enjoying or were not wanting to have Jesus as their king. They, they wanted a material kingdom. And so Paul is answering those who would level a charge at God for going back on his word, right? Because simply because it wasn't what they pictured. And Paul is setting the record straight, first of all, by redefining Israel. And he's saying that those who are the true Israel are not those who are physically descended from Jacob or Abraham, for that matter. But God's promise pointed to future descendants who would be named not by virtue of their family heritage or pedigree, not by virtue of a physical connection to Abraham, but rather they would be defined by the promise of God's word as he revealed uh, the meaning and fulfillment of what that promise actually was. And so Paul is showing here that God actually did. He did fulfill his promise to Abraham, and God chose long ago how he would go about it, and no one has the right to argue or demand that God justify his his actions. And this is an idea you see continually uh, in in Scripture in in, in the New Testament when it comes to uh, the true identity of Israel or who makes up true Israel or or the people of God. Uh, For example, in Philippians 3 and verse 3, Paul refers to the true circumcision, right? And so he's using that. Uh, language in that sign of the covenant and the, the old covenant of the people of God of physical circumcision. And he's saying Christians are the true circumcision or the true covenant people of God, even if they haven't been physically circumcised. Right. And, and he, even in the book of Romans, as we've discussed previously, if you go back to chapter two and you look at verse 28, he's already brought this up in, in this discussion um, in verse 28. And he says, for he is not a Jew, who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. 
but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And so notice he's focusing on the spiritual nature of this identity. All right, what is going on in a person inwardly in their spirit and in their heart? And he says, circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And so in, in that context, and early on in the letter, remember he's establishing in chapters two and three that all are guilty of sin, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you have the law or you don't know the law, all are indicted by God because there's always been law. And Jews and Gentiles alike are in need of this salvation that's offered through through Jesus Christ. And those who accept it, those will be the true spiritual people of God. Whether or not they're physically descended from Jacob, who was Israel, whether or not they're physically descended from Abraham, his granddad, ultimately that does not matter. What matters is, is if they share the same faith that Abraham had. Uh, and that's why God made this promise to him that he would have descendants that would outnumber the stars because those folks would be part of his family by virtue of their faith. That was like his. You can look in Romans chapter 4 for more of that explanation. But if we pick up in, in verse 11 uh, of chapter 9, Paul, again, is, is explaining here, again, by showing that God did fulfill his promise to Abraham. And he's going back to those younger generation, to those older generations, I should, I should say, that were physically descended from Abraham. So verse 11, he says, Though the twins, as Jacob and Esau, were not yet born uh, and had not done anything good or bad, uh, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. So God determined which individual would father his nation apart from any say-so of the infants. Right Before Jacob and Esau had done anything good or bad, God knew which one was going to be the father of his nation, regardless of their moral standing, regardless of anything. And God had a purpose in mind, and he chose the best route to fulfill that purpose and irrespective of what any man could do or think, God made this determination that the older would serve the younger. That Esau, who was born just you know a few minutes, I guess, before Jacob, uh, who came after him, I guess they were born at the same time because Jacob, remember, was born holding on to his heel, holding on to his older brother's heel. But God had determined that the older one, Esau, would serve the younger. And so when we go and look at the original context in which that were those, those words are said in Genesis 25. You're going to find that Jacob's posterity, not Jacob the individual, is under consideration. And that's a key point here in the context. That's a key point. That it is not Jacob the individual that this prophecy was referring to, but it was his posterity, the people that would be descended from him, the Israelites, the Hebrews. And that's the case in, in Romans Chapter 9, that's how Paul is using it. And so this is the only reasonable interpretation because if you look at the individual lives of Jacob and Esau, we're going to find just the opposite uh, of what was told to Rebekah, that the older would serve the younger, because Jacob actually lived in fear of his brother for a good portion of his life and actually offered a number. When he knew he was going to cross his brother's path again later in life, uh, you know, you go back and you look and he makes the big procession and he's offering gifts to Esau uh, and they're and they're reconciled. It's really a beautiful part of the story. And I think, uh, too, is, is Esau actually becomes typical at, at that point of his life of the graciousness of God and, and of Christ. 
in forgiving his brother and being reconciled to his brother. Uh, but that's that's beside the point. The point that we're making is that in individuals, um, Jacob was submissive to his his older brother, but his descendants would have pre- precedence over Esau's descendants, who would be called Edom in in the Old Testament uh, versus Israel. And that was again by God's choice. Is the point that Paul is making? So Paul is quoting Jacob, I loved, but Esau I hated from Malachi. So he's blending. A couple of texts together here from Genesis 25 and from the book of Malachi. And so just as in Genesis 25, so it is in Malachi. He's referring uh, to people, not individuals, because Malachi, last prophet of the Old Testament, is making that statement centuries after the individuals, Jacob and Esau, had died. So it's not something said before they were born. And again, this is speaking to God's favor of his chosen people, not the individuals, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Though one was chosen over God to fulfill God's purpose to be a father of, uh, of, of the Hebrews. So nothing Paul says here has anything to do. All that to say, all that to say this, that nothing about what Paul is saying here has anything to do with individual salvation and individual's Salvation and nothing he says invalidates or contradicts other biblical teaching, such as God is no respecter of persons, Romans two eleven, and God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, First Timothy two four. So you have to remember Paul's purpose in the context. We're gonna we're gonna come to conclusions that run afoul of those texts, even even points that he makes earlier in this same book, in Romans two and verse eleven. So you have to remember Paul's purpose. It's to show God's sovereignty in choosing to offer salvation to Gentiles, a class of people, a kind of people, and choosing also not only who he offers that salvation to, but choosing the basis for that salvation to be faith in Christ. He's not talking about individual destinies. The point that he's making with Jacob and Esau is that their posterities, their posterities work to serve God's ultimate purpose in bringing His Son into the world, wherein people could find salvation through faith in Him, and that was by God's design, and nobody can say boo about it. Right? God determined that, right? and so we have to remember the purpose again, for the sake of you know, the risk of sounding redundant, but for the sake of emphasis, Paul is showing God's sovereignty and choosing to offer salvation to Gentiles, all people, and choosing the basis for that salvation to be faith in Christ. And Paul wants us to understand that there's no injustice with God, that his will is incontrovertible, his choice is perfect. So if you look in verse 14 now, just continue reading there, he says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with, there is no injustice with God is there may it never be for he says to Moses I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion right. so God sets all that criterion God chooses who he will bestow mercy upon whom he will bestow mercy and, and whom he will harden he sets that criterion according to his will and not according to man's will regardless of man's desires But again, individual salvation is not under consideration, but the fulfillment of God's plan. How he went about reconciling both Jews and Gentiles to himself and his son. right? Because that was the hang-up that the Hebrews had, that the Jewish folks had. Is that this is not what we envision. 
This is not the kingdom we wanted. This is not the king we wanted. Uh, but that doesn't matter. Their desires, their think-sos and opinions didn't matter. This was God's choice. Jesus Christ is God's choice for all men. And he wants all men to be reconciled to him through his son, regardless of what men think. This is his plan. Just as it was his plan to create a people for himself, physically from Jacob, who would ultimately be the people through whom the Christ would come. That was his plan. Nobody could say boo about that. So Paul goes on again to offer another example. He's offering Pharaoh of Old Testament infamy as an example, that who was allowed to rule even though he was wicked so that God might demonstrate his power through Pharaoh's rebellion. That's in verse 17, if you just were to keep reading. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, verse 18 again, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So mercy was extended to Pharaoh numerous times. If we go through that text, and, and Paul is writing to people who would have been very familiar, I believe, with the the folks, the, the instances, that the narratives that he is referring to to make this point. And they would have known, and we can know when we go back to look at Exodus 8.15 and Exodus 8.32, that mercy was extended to Pharaoh time and time, time again, but he refused it. He hardened his heart. And regardless of what Pharaoh did and how Pharaoh responded, God's will remained the same, that his people must leave Egypt. Pharaoh could do nothing to change that. He wanted to. He hated the thought of doing that, and he uh, hated that God was power, more powerful than his idols, and he hardened him time and time again. God hardened him by demanding something of Pharaoh that Pharaoh was unwilling to do, you see. And so the point of all of this, these examples, that God is that God is in control. The point is not... The point is not that Pharaoh and Moses had no will of their own. That's not what Paul is discussing. What Paul, The point that Paul is making in is that God is in control. God is in control. And he, can, he determines his own, own will. And if that hardens people, so be it. If people submit to it, then so be it. That's what he desires. But he's not going to force anyone to submit to him. His plan is his plan. His truth is absolute, and we submit to it. Even if it gets our, our hackles up or it rubs us the wrong way, that that reveals there's something wrong with us. That reveals uh, that we're having the wrong attitude. And so Paul anticipates that there there's a quibble coming here, that someone might say and quibble, well, why, why, why would God find fault since no one can thwart his purpose? In other words, why would God condemn anybody or any class of people if this was his purpose all along? If those if those who attempt to frustrate him, like Pharaoh, for example, let's say, and, and all others like him, who are trying to frustrate him, only confirm his glory and power, why does why does God find fault? In verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? That's from the New American Standard. In verse 20, this is how Paul responds. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? 
And so Paul is shutting down that argument and he's saying, that's not really even an argument. So we could say that's it, you know, put arguments in quotes. Paul is answering the quote argument. He says it's not even worthy of serious consideration. Again, he's emphasizing to us that it's not for man to demand that God justify his actions under any circumstances or conditions. Job had to learn that the hard way. Right? Job wanted an answer for why God allowed such terrible things to happen to him. He wanted God to justify himself, and he wanted to justify himself to God. But it's not for man to demand that God justify his actions. He is the creator. He is the potter. He is the molder who shapes the destinies of nations and determines what kind of person can be counted among his people. Verse 20. He makes those, he makes that, he sets that criterion. And if he would use one people for honor for a time, so be it. And that's what he had done with the Jews. That's what Paul is saying. He does not saying Hebrew specifically, you know, what if he had used one vessel for honor? And again, he's using prophetic language that these folks would have known. He's quoting Jeremiah. This is exactly what Jeremiah said when he's referring to nation, the nation of Israel as clay in the potter's hands being molded and shaped by, by God for different purposes. And so in realizing that a light bulb would have gone off and they would have realized Paul is saying the same. He's talking about us. He's talking about he's talking about Jews in this context that we the people the Hebrews were used for a time uh, to for honorable use to to ultimately bring to to glorify God and to bring His plan to fruition in His Son bring His Son into into the world serve, serve as that bloodline and bring His Son into the world to save all people and if you wanted to use another people for dishonor then so be it. But none of this diminishes or mitigates in any way the doctrine that individuals may be vessels for honor or dishonor based upon their willingness to submit to him. This this was the ter- determining factor between Moses and Pharaoh, and it remains so to this day. So we have to keep it with the context. So Paul will use the same uh, or similar metaphors, I should say, in making different points with regard to an individual's destiny and a people's destiny. Right, And we have to recognize that or else we're going to run into a contradiction here in Romans 9 in places like 2 Timothy 2.20. In 2 Timothy 2.20, Paul uses the same metaphor again, a similar one, I should say. He says, now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So, you know, in that metaphor, in that teaching to Timothy, what is Paul saying? You know, what what is the determining factor whether, and, and you know, in that case, what's the determining factor whether or not someone's going to be a vessel for honor to God or a vessel for dishonor? Well, notice what he says. If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor. And you look in the context, and Paul is talking about the reprobate behavior of some specific individuals. And Timmy, he's telling Timothy that anybody can follow that path, but you know what? Anybody can follow this other path too and cleanse himself from those things and be set apart for the work of God and be that vessel of honor. So nothing of what Paul says in Romans chapter 9 contradicts what he's saying to Timothy there. So God exacts justice upon sin. He withheld his full wrath and he continues to do so. That's what Paul is explaining here. What if God, in verse 22 of Romans 9, what if God, although 
willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand even us, Christians, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. I will call to those who are not my people, he quotes Hosea, verse 25, and I will call her who is not beloved, beloved, and it shall be that in that place where it was said of them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. So God exacts his justice upon sin, but he withheld his full wrath, and he continues to do so, as Peter says in Second Peter 3, 9, when addressing mockers who would say, where's the promise of his coming? Where is, where is Jesus? Why is he not coming back as, as he promised? And Peter says, God's not slow, but he's patient. And he wants all people to come to re- to repentance. So he's doing this. He's 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 delaying in order to make known his grace and mercy toward those who would accept it. Vessels of mercy. So this is all in an effort to draw more people to himself, just as it was in, in our time, just as it was in their time. Right? The the vessels of mercy here equate to Paul says, verse twenty four, even us who are called by his gospel. It's made up of both Jews and Gentiles meaning any and all who are willing to be a vessel of mercy and be a vessel of mercy. You put that together with what we find in places like Acts 10.35, when Peter, who was God's choice to go to the Gentiles first, the house of Cornelius, the first Gentiles to obey the gospel. And he says, I understand now in verse 35, God's no respecter of persons, but anyone, anyone who seeks to do right is welcome to him. In other words, anyone who's willing to submit and and obey. Anyone can be a vessel of mercy. God wants us to be vessels of mercy. And lastly, Paul makes the point that no matter how numerous physical Israel may be, it is only the remnant of Israel who will be saved. And and this is in connection with the the previous point that we made at the beginning of of our lesson that that Paul does at, at the very outset of this discussion where he says they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And so now he's bringing that explanation uh, to uh, not, he's not putting a punctuation mark on it, but he's, he's explaining it more when he says, like we read in verse 26, those who are not my people, they'll be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, that though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly, just as Isaiah foretold. Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us to posterity, we would have become like Sodom, we would have resembled Gomorrah. So what's Paul saying? Again, I I believe he's saying no matter how numerous physical Israel may have been or may be, even today it is only the remnant that will be faithful who will be saved. And the remnant are those who are found faithful. And he's going to go on to explain that in chapter 10 and 11. And we'll get to that in the, in the future. He defines what that remnant is and how God um, defines that remnant, I should say. That his, his vengeance is still coming, and the only way to escape is faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And we can't get away from this text without uh, seeing that here in, in, in the context. What shall that we say? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though as though it were by works. 
They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay as, as in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So it is faith in Jesus Christ, again, that allows us to escape the vengeance of God, that allows us to be counted among that remnant. Paul has more to say about this than he will in chapters 10 and 11 as he expands further on, on this point. But uh, here he's saying many Gentiles received righteousness or justification, which is by faith in verse 30, but not many of the Jews, verse 31, who never arrived at the goal of the law, which was righteousness, justification. Why is that the case? Verse 32, he answers, because they tried to obtain it by works. They tried to be legally justified on the basis of what they had done meritoriously. In other words, they thought they could earn it. And so when someone comes along, when their king comes along, Jesus Christ, and says, no, you can only be justified through forgiveness in, in me. And I am the perfect, or I will be the perfect sacrifice. John chapter 6. He is the bread of, of heaven. And John 14 and, and verse 6, that no one comes to the Father except through him. He's the way, the truth, and, and the life. When when he comes along and says, no, you regardless of, of the good things that you have done in the law of Moses as, as he commanded, regardless of all of those things, you still need forgiveness. And true forgiveness can only come through obedience to God's Son, submitting to him, putting your faith in him, believing him. This, this is the way to righteousness, to real justification before God. And that's offensive to people. And that, that it was offensive to the Jews. And not just Jews, we're not singling out a particular kind of people. It's because it's, it's still offensive to people today, many kinds of people, regardless of ethnicity, or location, or time. Because people say, boy, what do you mean? I, I need to be forgiven? And the Bible is saying, yes. Yes, we all do. Romans 3.23 all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's just not something people will want to hear. They would much rather hear the, the funeral gospel. Oh, he was a good guy, or she was a good mom, or she was a sweet, sweet grandmother. She did so many things. She was so honest and so service-oriented, and she loved people, and she loved her family, and she was a a good employee and she worked really hard, you know, all these kinds of, things. Well, you know, that's what people say, right? They, because we want to celebrate their life and we want to remember all the good things they did. And we tell those, we tell those stories to comfort ourselves and, and, and we try to soothe our consciences and soothe ourselves about their life and their standing before God by, by talking about what they did. When the Bible is saying your sweet old grandmother and your mom, however honest and kind and loving and service-oriented, they were needed forgiveness and needs forgiveness. And you know what? That's going to continue even after you obey Jesus Christ. The Christian will still need forgiveness. Remember, John was writing to Christians in 1 John 1 when he said, If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sins, Christians, Jesus is faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You see, Jesus was raised from the dead to be our high priest, to be that intercessor for us still. Hebrews 7.25, he's interceding for his people. We need that. We need that advocate. First John 2, verses 1 and 2. 
We need forgiveness. And the one who has faith in Jesus, anyone, Jew or Gentile, will never be disappointed. That's what Paul is saying. But find the mercy of God and deliverance from his wrath. That's God's choice. That's his will. That's his plan for his people. That's what he wants. He wants to be reconciled to all men. 1 Timothy 2, verses 4 and 5. He wants all to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. And so he put in motion a plan from from time immemorial, before time even existed, we might say, that he determined he determined the, the defining characteristic of his kingdom, the people in his kingdom who would submit to his rule. That they would have faith in his son. And nothing man says or thinks or does otherwise is going to change his will. It's going to change his plan. And so we each have to ask ourselves, have I submitted to God? Have I? Do I know his plan? Have I submitted to his plan? Do I know his son? Have I submitted to his son? Have I, as Paul says in Romans 6, 17, have I, have I obeyed the gospel from the heart? Am I striving to do that now? That's the basis for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And we all need that, and we will continue to need it until our dying breath. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. I, I enjoyed this study, and I hope it's been beneficial to you. It certainly has been beneficial to me to study these things. We're going to continue to do so. I'm going to continue to pray about them, and I hope that you will too. Pray for wisdom and understanding in the Word of God so that we can come to know Him better and understand Him and His will for our lives better and be pleasing to Him. I look forward to meeting you, hearing from you. If you'd like to study further, if you have any questions or comments, please email me at leonvalleychurch at gmail.com. Check out our website at, at leonvalleychurch.org. Uh, some of the radio, older radio programs are posted there, older podcasts and, and things like this and other resources. So help yourself to those things. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings. <laughs>